Our scripture this morning is from Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 28. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of, Ephes of the Ephesians. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, well, good to see you all. Um, it's Again, it's a, it's a joy to be with you this morning. If you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts uh, chapter 19. But, but as you're turning there, um, some of you might be aware of, of this kind of new cultural phenomenon. It's been around for a while. But um, anybody done the Whole30 diet? Whole30? You don't have to admit it, but you can. Uh, so the Whole30, for those of you who don't know, Whole30 is an entire month where you just throw happiness out the window. <laughs> And, and you just weep during every meal. Um, basically, for, for those that don't know, um, you, you limit your caloric intake to a certain number of, of food items. You, you eat fruits, vegetables, meat, and LaCroix. That's basically all you can consume. And you eat like a caveman, basically. And, and this, is, this is a safe place, right? Can we admit that LaCroix is terrible? Can we, can we admit that? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So, <laughs> some people are leaving the church after this. But, but if, for those of you who don't know, LaCroix, if you don't know what LaCroix is, uh, just imagine someone who ate a bunch of pineapple and then burped into some water. That's basically, that's LaCroix. People are leaving the church, I know that, but uh, I'm okay with that. It's a hill I'm going to die on people. No, but, but in all seriousness, um, my wife and I, we did the Whole30 diet a few years ago, and, and it, was, it was pretty intense, and, and it did kind of create some new habits for us as a family, some eating habits, but I, without exaggeration, it was perhaps one of the most 
disruptive things to, to our life. I mean, in so many ways. I mean, it, like we never spent more time planning meals, uh, preparing meals. We, we have never spent more uh, money uh, on groceries during Whole30. Uh, we spent less time with friends because we couldn't like eat out as much. If we did, we spent a lot more time asking the waitress, like, what's in this? Is there sugar in it? And, like, it was just so embarrassing. And, and I spent more time daydreaming about ice cream than a grown man really should. But, but I share this because, I mean, it was so disruptive. It changed my mood. It changed our, our finances. It changed our social life in various ways. And, and whether it's a, it's a diet, whether it's a new hobby, uh, a new device, or a new relationship, or a new job, we, we've experienced something like this, where something new enters our life. Maybe it's a new school year. It's a new classroom. And it totally disrupts everything. And sometimes in good ways, but also in bad ways. And, and this, this same phenomenon of, of something entering your life and utterly disrupting it is the, is the very phenomenon that the Ephesian Christians experienced um, in Acts chapter 19 that Luke shows, her, shows us. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts 19. And what we're going to see this morning as is, is Luke shows us the story of this, this growing church in Ephesus is that to follow Jesus, when we talk about following Jesus, following Jesus in all of life will disrupt your life. That, that is a fact, that to follow Jesus in all of life will indeed disrupt your life. And it's this idea that I want us to kind of unpack and explore a bit in Acts chapter 19. But before we jump into God's word, I want to pray uh, for God's blessing on the teaching of his word. So let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause in this moment again, Lord, to ask for your spirit to be at work in showing us the truth of your word. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray, Lord, that, that in new and fresh ways, you would show us who you are and what it means for us to, to follow Jesus. And may that bring about a change and transformation in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So Acts 19, a uh, little context just so we know where we are in Acts. So, so Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been kind of on his missionary journey. He's been proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and he has come from Corinth, uh, and he enters into the city of Ephesus, which is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And, and at this point in Paul's missionary journey, he's become rather notorious and, and infamous. Uh, his, his reputation precedes him, and we see that in Acts 19. And so Paul's not just this, you know, itinerant speaker. People know who Paul is. And every city he enters into, there seems to be a little bit of disruption because he's proclaiming this message about Jesus who, when we follow him, disrupts our lives. And that's exactly what happens in Ephesus. And, and the first story I want us to look at, is the, the story that Lindsay read for us, is that in this story we see that Jesus, when we follow him in all of life, he disrupts our lifestyles. He disrupts our lifestyles. So, so during this time in Ephesus, Paul, Paul spent a good chunk of time in Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit was doing some phenomenal things in and through Paul, performing these miracles, so much so that these kind of um, neighboring Jewish exorcists had been intrigued by Paul. They're like, man, this guy has, has some real power. And, and they sought to kind of take a play out of Paul's playbook and use the name of Jesus in their attempts to try to cast out evil spirits. But by doing it in the second-hand way, it doesn't really go well for them. And Luke shows us that in verses 13 through 16. So Luke says, starting in verse 13, 
then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, they undertook to invoke the name of Jesus. I'm sorry, to, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Which I just, I just, I love that. Like, they don't know these guys. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Like, what kind of fight was that? That was intense. First service, I said, I'd pay money to see that. I was like, I probably shouldn't say that actually in church. That's very strange to say. But it's an, in an intense altercation that's going on here. And what I love about this interaction is that this evil spirit is able to say, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know who you all are. Because if you notice, they said, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So it was a secondhand rate of using Jesus. They, they, they had witnessed the power of Jesus, but they had not come to personally believe in the person and power of Jesus for themselves. And so they really had no power over this evil that they were observing. Now, when, when the people around Ephesus saw this, they saw the hollowness, the emptiness of these Jewish exorcists that had also built a reputation in the city. They saw like, oh my gosh, like there's no way that, that they could overpower this evil spirit. And in response, there were many Jews and Greeks that came to faith in Christ Jesus because they saw the futility of the power of these exorcists and they realized it's the power of Jesus that has real power over evil in our world. But in addition to just Jews and Greeks coming to faith in Christ, Luke shows us that it wasn't just them, but that the Christians in Ephesus had also responded in light of this amazing event by showing how they, they kind of began to confess and divulge these various practices uh, that they had been partaking in. And Luke shows this in verses 18 and 19. If you read along with me, it says, Also many of those who were now believers, so Christians who were in Ephesus, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So basically what's happening in the Christian community here in Ephesus is that the Christians were, were either guilty of, of a nominal faith uh, or a syncretistic faith. In other words, they basically saw Jesus as either this hobby, just a part of their life, or he was this, this thing that they added to their pagan worldview that they blended together so that they could continue engaging in these dark magic arts. Regardless, what we see is that they hadn't come to fully embrace and understand the power of Jesus and what it means to follow him in all of life. As one commentator puts it, he says, what we are dealing with here is partially socialized Christians who did not immediately give up all of their old religious practices when they converted. So, so essentially, Jesus, in this moment, in, in this, this Christian church in Ephesus, Jesus was just a facet. He was a, a portion. He was an aspect of their lives and not the center of their lives. They were not following Jesus in all of life to the degree that he had an impact and influence on their, on their financial decisions, on their occupations, on the way in which they spent their free time. He was simply a facet. Or to put it another way, he was one of the many magic books on their shelves rather than the very shelf itself that held everything about their very lives. 
But in this moment, these Christians in Ephesus had begun to see that their old practices, that these, whatever it was that these magic arts displayed, that these practices were not able to be held as they sought to follow Jesus. They were seeing that there was an incongruity between how they lived, how they worked, and what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, and this resulted in them burning their books together, which it's kind of a radical response. Uh, it's not a social protest. It's not a cultural response, you know. So, the, you know, the application point here is not go burn your Harry Potter books. Don't worry about that. But really what's going on is that they realize, look, we can no longer adhere to these, these forms of work and vocation through these dark arts and still call ourselves followers of Jesus. They, they cannot be held together. And so when they gather these books together, they burnt them. What Luke says, that the, the total value is 50,000 pieces of silver, which is basically the equivalent of close to $6 million in modern-day currency, which, which that's, a, that's a chunk of change, which means that these books were not just hobbies. I mean, for, for the worth and value of the books to be close to $6 million, these books must have been central to their work, to their occupation. And so it wasn't just them letting go of certain hobbies, although it was probably part of that, but many of them were saying, we can no longer live and work in this way, that these things that were central to our life and to our livelihood, we can no longer hold to because we see them as being antithetical to Jesus and the kingdom that he is bringing to this world that is for our good. And so when we see this radical response of the Ephesian Christians... We should, as followers of Jesus, if that's, if that's how you identify yourself, we should ask ourselves this question, what can we learn from their response? How can we see this act of, of book burning, so to speak, um, as, as a practice that we can engage in? Now, I'm not like, if you look under your book, there's a magic book. No, there, there's no book under your chair. Don't worry. But, but how can we contextualize this act of bringing forth these things that are completely contrary to the kingdom of God? Because what we see in the, in the church of Ephesus is that to follow Jesus in all of life inevitably will disrupt things in your life and my life that have been central to our lives and in, in some ways probably central to our livelihood. For the follower of Jesus, we ought to see and experience some kind of disruption in our lives. And not just one time, and not just initially, but that if we are going to be faithful to Jesus and to his kingdom that truly is for our good, then we ought to see certain disruptions in our own lives and to our lifestyle. That we ought to see certain decisions that we can no longer make. That we should see certain hobbies that we can no longer engage in, certain relationships that we shouldn't participate in, and perhaps even certain careers and business practices that we can no longer engage in because of our allegiance to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, I want to say something very, very clearly to you, is that if you're on the fence, if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, I hope you hear me say that if you're considering this idea of following Jesus, I hope you know what you're getting into. I hope you understand that to follow Jesus means that you are no longer living for yourself, but your allegiance primarily and fundamentally is to Jesus and to his kingdom, to his values, to the way in which he sees the world, that your definition of the good life should be conformed to his and not your own. And so I want to be very clear that to follow Jesus, it will not be easy, okay? 
I'm probably talking some of you out of it, but I just hope you understand that to follow Jesus in all of life is never easy. He never promises that, but he does promise that it is good because Jesus enters our life to disrupt our life, but he does so in the most loving and transformative way. Jesus enters our our life to disrupt our life, but he does so in order to bring us life. So so as we look at this first story in the the Ephesian church, a question for all of us, I think regardless of where you are in the faith journey, faith spectrum, I think a question that we can all respond to is this. What needs to be confessed and divulged in our own lives? As as we see the the response of the Christians in Ephesus, as as they saw the power of Jesus, they realized we can no longer live this way if we are going to be faithful to Jesus. And so they confessed and they divulged, they brought to light, they, they brought to the public the things that they had been doing that were, incon- that were inconsistent with the kingdom of Christ Jesus. So just like the Ephesian Christians, for us, we should ask this question, what, what, are, what are the secret sins? What are the hidden hobbies? What are the corrupt careers, perhaps, that we have fallen prey to that, that if we are following Jesus, we should say, this, I can't keep doing this. These things cannot be so. I I cannot hold them together as I seek to follow Christ. Are there things in our lives that we need to cast into the proverbial book fire, if you will? Not just because they're wrong, but because they actually are undermining our own efforts in finding joy and meaning and purpose and value in life because they are antithetical to God's design for human flourishing. So perhaps it's a show Perhaps it's a show you watch, like, I, I, can't, I can't watch this anymore. It, it, it creates too much temptation. It's, it's corrupting me. It, it brings about too many thoughts that I just feel like are making me less human. Perhaps it's a video game that you should stop playing. And maybe, maybe because it is corrupt itself, but because just you've become so consumed by it. I was listening to uh, Sports Radio 810 recently. Nate Bucati, I don't know his faith uh, religion or his convictions, but he was talking about his son who plays video games just nonstop. And this is what Bucati said. It was so interesting. He said, after my kid plays video games for so many hours, I feel like he's less human. And, and, and that's, I'm not trying to guilt you guys for playing video games, but are there things that we have become so ingrained in, that we have so participated in, that it's keeping us from being fully human? Is there an app you need to take off your phone? Is there a relationship that should probably come to an end? Are there business practices or perhaps an entire career that you should leave or refrain from because it stands opposed to the kingdom of Christ? I don't know what those things are. I, I can't assume those things for you, but my prayer is that through the work of the Spirit, we would have the courage and the conviction to identify those things, to confess them, to divulge them, bring them to the light so that we might find the life that Christ has invited us into. And the reality is, is that it must happen. And it's not just a one-time thing, as I mentioned. We must, if we are going to be faithful to following Jesus in all of life, then we must be willing and able to confess these things and divulge these things, bring them to, lo- to the light so that we might be faithful to the life that Christ has called us to. So Jesus, yes, when he enters our life, when we follow him in all of life, he disrupts our lifestyle, but he doesn't stop there. And as Luke shows us, Jesus also, when we follow him in all of life, Jesus disrupts our economy, which is very interesting. And this is where it'll get 
very interesting. So verse 23, verse 23, follow me along in Luke, uh, as Luke says in verse 23, how this reaction, how this faithfulness to Jesus played out in the community of Ephesus. So verse 23, Luke says, about that time there arose no little disturbance, which if you've been following along in Acts, like Luke does this all the time, like there was no little disturbance, no little amount of money. It's just funny. I'm a nerd. Uh, Okay. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is a term that Luke uses to describe Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business, there it is again, uh, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul. So you see the, the notoriety, the infamy of Paul. This Paul has persuaded and turned away great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. So in Ephesus, just to kind of give you an understanding of the culture, idol worship was big business. Much money, like like no little amount of money was made um, in Ephesus from the uh, idol worship. And and so whether it was through the production of shrines or various religious uh, paraphernalia, so much money was, was stood to be made from idol worship. You know, they probably had things like WWAD bracelets. What would Artemis do? You know, probably. That was funny. Come on. Come on. That was funny. No, it wasn't. Um, thank you. But, but so here's the interesting thing. In this city where, where idol worship was a huge factor in the economy, sales are dipping. You know, I don't know what quarter this is, but Demetrius is like, dude, things are not going well for us. And so he gathers his friends together, like, what has caused this dip in sales? I mean, like, this has been, like, our main industry. How are sales so low? And the cause for this economic downturn was not because there was this, like, formal boycott of the Christians, like, we can't do this anymore, but it was just because the faithful presence of Christians who were consistent and public about their faith, they realized, like, we we can no longer do the things we used to do. We can no longer support the things we used to support. And because of their faithful presence, these Christians began to have an impact on the economy that was growing and developing from idolatrous and and really unjust and like acts of debauchery. And and what makes it even more interesting is that this is actually during the peak season of of like idol worship and sales. It was during the one-month festival uh, devoted to the worship of the goddess Artemis. And the festival was, was literally called Artemisia, which is just, just funny, I think. But there's a whole month devoted to heavy drinking, athletic events, and prostitution. And it's during this month where they got, I mean, it, it's the Black Friday, essentially, in Ephesus of where people made their money. And it's during the peak season where sales are down. I mean, so you see the amazing impact that faithful Christians in this city are having even on the economy that is based on things that are ungodly and truly undermine the flourishing of humanity. And as a result, the revenue streams of the idolatry industrial complex kind of dry up and it creates quite the disruption. And and again, this was taking place during this intense time or the, 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 the peak season of this industry. And as a result, the economic powers of Ephesus that were built on idolatry and debauchery They were challenged. And so again, stepping back and looking at this story, I I think we have a lot that we can learn from our our first century spiritual siblings, so to speak, in Ephesus. 
Because no matter where the church of Jesus Christ is, if the church is faithfully present in a community and in a city, we ought to see things like injustice and immoral practices. We ought to see these things challenged and confronted. Because the church of Jesus Christ cannot remain a privatized institution, but it must be a gathered and scattered people of influence, challenging, confronting, calling out the evil practices that truly do undermine our own joy and good. And I love, this is how uh, one, one theologian, William Larkin, he puts it this way, and this is a bold phrase, but he says, any Christianity worth its salt will be a challenge to the pocketbook, the flag, and the shrine. And that's saying a lot, because what it's, it's not saying that money is bad, and it's not saying that patriotism is bad, and it's not even saying that, that certain religious traditions are bad. But when our allegiance, if we are followers of Jesus, if our allegiance is to him above all things, then we ought to see certain things confronted in our culture, not just because they're bad and wrong, but because we believe that they stand against God's design for human flourishing for our good and for our joy. So as we look at the impact that the Christians in Ephesus had, as we saw them faithfully and publicly and consistently following Jesus in all of life, in a very hostile community, how can we, for those of us who identify as Christians, how can we look at this story and learn from it? And so a question for us, just like the first question that maybe was more personal, what needs to be confessed and divulged, this is a question for us as a church. What needs to be challenged and confronted? As we think about Christ's community, as the church gathered and scattered in all the places that God sends us, are we a people that are so captivated by the goodness of Jesus and his gospel, so amazed by his design for life that is truly for our good, are we a people that can challenge and confront the injustices and the immoral practices we see in our communities, in our schools, in our places of work, in our government, and beyond. If the church of Jesus Christ in Olathe and in Kansas City broadly truly understood what it means to follow Jesus in all of life, then I believe we, we should, we ought to see corrupt uh, forms of commerce, corrupt businesses like, like payday loans, for example. We should see those businesses going belly up because they, they, they prey on the poor, and they are so, they're such terrible, uh, I, I, I'm not going to go to a soapbox there, but we should see these things going belly up in our cities. We should see kind of the unethical business practices of, of like overbilling, overcharging customers or under-informing them, under-informing clients. We should see these things going away in our places of work. We should see corrupt and perverse versions of entertainment like pornography and drug abuse, seeing these things kind of rid from our communities. Again, not just because they're bad, but because we see that they stand opposed to the kingdom of Jesus that is breaking into this world and bringing about the good life that we all long for. Referring to this very text, um, theologian Craig Blomberg, he says this, and it's just, oh, this just hit me. And I just, I just prayed, I said, Lord, would this be true of us as a church? But Blomberg says this, he says, if only contemporary industries like the illegal drug trade and pornography or human trafficking would complain that they were in danger of going under because too few people supported them financially, especially Christians and those who were turning to Christ. 
Isn't, isn't that the world you want to live? I mean, regardless of your religious background or convictions, isn't that the world you want to live in where people have such a vision of what the good life is? And I believe it is a good life that is given to us in Jesus. We are so captivated by a vision of that life that it compels us to say, I can no longer support this thing. I can no longer be a part of this relationship. I can no longer be in this field of work. I can no longer engage in this form of entertainment, not out of a sense of legalism, because I probably shouldn't, but because we are so drawn to a much better life, a life that Jesus enters and disrupts. But again, he disrupts it for our good. So Jesus, he disrupts our lifestyles, and he disrupts our economy, but it, he, he doesn't stop there either. And as we see in Ephesus, when Jesus is the center of our life, when we follow him in all of life, we also see that Jesus disrupts our communities. He disrupts our communities. Now, it should be said, just, just to be clear, the, 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 the Christians in Ephesus, they, they weren't setting out to disrupt the city. They weren't like, hey, how can we tick off all of our neighbors? Like, that wasn't their aim. But simply by being consistent and public about their faith, and about what they believed, it brought about a disruption in the community. And, and we see that in the reaction, but, but what we also see is that this disruption, yes, while it was in some sense brought about by the faithfulness of the Christians in the city, we also see that the disruption was caused by Ephesus itself. And Luke shows this in verse 28 and 29, follow along here. So Luke says, so this is... Um, after Demetrius is speaking, he says, when they heard this, when they heard about the influence of Christians on the, the idolatry economy, he says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions of travel. So what's happening here is that the Ephesian pagans had begun to demonize and vilify the Christians in the city. And they were doing, because they were putting all the, blame, all the blame on them, but the reason why is because they had idolized Artemis. You see, we, we never demonize someone or something without first idolizing someone or something. And when you idolize something like success or whatever it may be, again, it may be a good thing, but when we idolize something, it's very easy to demonize anything that gets in the way of that idol. And that's precisely what is happening here. And so while the pagans are flipping out and, and, and risking a riot in the city, the interesting contrast is that the Christians are calm and civil and patient. And, and it's so interesting because they also are the ones who are facing great threats. They have the greatest reason to say, okay, hey, we we're just kidding, sure, we'll buy one of your little shrines here. But they remain faithful but they also remain calm and collected, which is just fascinating. And it should ask us, or it should force us to ask the question, how, how are they able to be so calm, so civil, so patient in this moment? And the reason why is because the Ephesian Christians had something that the Ephesian pagans didn't. They had a confidence that their God would never be dethroned. They had a confidence that their God would never be forgotten that their God could potentially be beaten by another God. They're like, like do your worst. Like, we're, we're, we worship the true God. There's no way you'll beat us. But the Ephesian pagans did not have the same confidence, which is what Demetrius says. Look back in verse 27. It says, and, and there's danger. So Demetrius is saying, there's danger not only that this trade of ours 
uh, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So the great irony here is that in all of the diatribe and protest uh, of the Ephesian pagans and saying it's these Christians that have caused the problem, they are actually the ones creating the greater disruption. And, and it's the town clerk, this, oh, this is such a fascinating interaction, it's the town clerk of Ephesus that is able to point this out. Like he, he points out, he's like, look, you guys are the problem here, not these Christians. And so he says in verse 37 and 40, in fact, just really interesting, this is the longest speech in the book of Acts that is recorded by anyone who's not an apostle. So Luke wants us to see there, there's something important here that this town clerk is noticing something about the influence and the impact of Christians in a city. And so in verse 37, the town clerk says this. He gathers the people together. He says, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. And then he goes on, but look at verse 40. He says, for we, you know, it's, he's referring to the Ephesian pagans, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. So it's the town clerk who is able to see, look, the problem of Ephesus is not these Christians. The problem with Ephesus is Ephesus. The problem is that you have, you have and, and the town clerk doesn't say this, but essentially what he is recognizing or what he's articulating is this idea that he doesn't fully understand is that the problem is that you have idolized something that was never intended to be idolized or worshipped. And because of that, you have demonized something that is actually good. The biggest problem facing Ephesus was Ephesus. And the city was actually beginning to see this as the town clerk dismissed the Ephesian pagans, and they realized, we might be part of the problem. So, so yes, yes, there is a sense in which following Jesus in all of life it will cause disruption in our community. It absolutely will. And it, and it should, in a sense. Because as long as there is evil and injustice and sin in the world, the presence of Christians in any community ought to be challenging those things. But there is also a sense in which the presence of faithful followers of Jesus who follow Jesus in all of life, that there ought to be also a reaction among the community that says, how on earth are these Christians able to confront and challenge our culture and do so with such grace and humility and kindness. Now, that's not always the case. Because for, for some of you who are not Christians, you would say, that's, that's not my category of Christian. And, and so, so here's the question that I want to ask us. Christ's community, as we think about what it means to follow Jesus in all of life, is there civility in our fidelity? Is there civility in our fidelity? And what I mean by that is that, is there a sense in which can we have patience and grace and humility and love and understanding and respect for people who are different than us, people who view the world differently, people who would reject the claims of Jesus? Can we still love them? It, it, let me put it this way. Are we able to disagree with our neighbors and still respect them? And for them to say, I know that my Christian neighbor disagrees with me, and yet he still, she still respects me. Are we able, to, if we are to have civility with our fidelity, are we able to challenge the perspectives and the practices of a non-Christian culture? Are we able to confront those and challenge them and yet still love our neighbors? 
Are we able to still call our neighbors to faith and repentance while recognizing we too need to repent? And, and there's no category to say, oh, I did that. I did the faith and repentance thing like eight years ago. I'm good. Are we able to call people to faith and repentance knowing that we still need to repent of our own sin? That the day we come to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior is not the day we no longer need to repent. It is the day we realize how desperately and daily we need to repent of our brokenness, of our sin. So can we, as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, both gathered on Sundays and scattered throughout the rest of the week, can we be a people who, who disrupt our communities in such a way that doesn't just anger people, but compels them to lean in and say, there must be something to this whole following Jesus thing, because I have never seen anyone confront and challenge me and yet love me so well. And again, for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, you, you, part of the barrier for you to faith has been the fact that Christians have not maintained civility with their fidelity. And, and that is because, let me be very clear, that is because we as Christians have not consistently and faithfully followed Jesus. Because a faithful, consistent, public follower of Jesus will be one who is truly devoted to the truth of the scriptures but is able to confront and challenge the evils and injustices and the immoralities of our culture with grace, kindness, and humility. So can we be a people who confess and bring to light our own brokenness and sin? Can we be a people who are able to confront and challenge the practices and perspectives of our culture, yet, yet with love and grace? And can we be a people who possess fidelity with civility? If so, the, the next question is, how does it happen? How do we become this, this kind of people? And the reality is, we, I mean, the, the town clerk, you know, he, I think in his mind, what he was thinking, man, we need better civil life. We, we need better litigation and better legislation. We need better economic practices. And while, while all those things are good, and even, and even necessary to some degree for human flourishing, they are not enough. What the world needs, if we truly are longing for the good life together, what the world needs is the church. What the world needs is the gospel. What the world needs truly is Jesus. But as we close, let me be clear. What the world doesn't need is a kind of church that is purely just a moral compass at best or an exclusive religious club at worst. What the church needs, what the world needs rather, is a church that has been so enlivened and captivated by the gospel that it can't help but, but be faithful and consistent in its life, in living in the presence of a culture that, that does seek, seek to undermine its own joy and pursuit of the good life. The world needs a church that believes in the gospel in such a way that it can lovingly disrupt the culture in a way that still possesses humility and grace. The world, the world doesn't need a gospel that simply says you're bad and Christians are better. But the world needs a gospel that disrupts our lifestyles, disrupts our economies, disrupts our communities. How? By destroying our sin and by making us new in Christ Jesus. The world, needs a, the world does not need a Jesus who fits nicely into our life and who never challenges us. Instead, what the world needs is a Jesus who, when we follow him in all of life, he disrupts our life in the most beautiful and most transformative ways. 
We need a Jesus who brings us out of darkness into light, who brings us out of falsehood into truth, who brings us out of death into life. Is this the Jesus that you follow? Is this the gospel you believe that has this kind of impact? And is this the kind of church that we are? If not, then come to this Jesus. Believe in this gospel. And join the mission of the church that God has sent into the world to lovingly disrupt the evil in this world for the good of others and for the glory of Christ Jesus. May we be this people. May we be this church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause in this moment again to ask, Lord, that you would do a new and fresh work in our hearts. Lord, I ask for your spirit to to bring about the courage and the conviction to confess uh, our our secret sins, our hidden hobbies, our corrupt careers, uh, so that we might be more consistent and faithful in following you. Lord, I ask that you would equip us as your people to be faithful in the places you have sent us that we might represent you through our thoughts, through our words, through our deeds in such a way that we do see the the systems and the structures of injustice and immorality fall apart and crumble before our eyes. And Lord, may we be a people, may we be a people who, who understand that what it means to follow you does not mean that we just anger our neighbors, but Lord, may we, in our fidelity, in our faithfulness, have civility, have humility and grace. Lord, equip us to be the church of Jesus Christ as we leave this place into the various vocations and communities and environments you called us to. May we be faithful in following you in such a way that we see heaven breaking into this world and your kingdom bringing truth and light and goodness to a world that desperately needs it. Oh, Lord, would you do this in our lives, in our communities, in our city, in our world for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I, loved, I love that song. I love that Christ is our vision. That May that be our prayer. And that hopefully was my prayer as we sang together. And uh, thank you for being able to do that. As Reed, as Reed talked, and he talked about what needs to be confessed and what needs to be challenged, it's oftentimes a, a feeling of, boy, what, Lord, what, what is on the heart that I do need to surrender to you? But I was struck by the last line that Reed said. It was, May we be a church that has been captured or that has a vision of Jesus and then out of love serves and praises Jesus. That is my prayer for us. And with that in mind, may this benediction go with us as we go forth. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.